Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 38th episode of the podcast. Sounds about right? Audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Frank Marrero, author of the book Recollections of Socrates. This book offers a dramatic and intimate view of the life and teachings of the world's prodient philosopher, a ringside seat into the inner circle of an awakened master and his disciples. This living portrait, grounded in abundant historical fact, reflects the great tradition of spiritual and philosophical masters interacting with their initiates for the sake of instruction and awakening. Thus it brings to life the philosophical and spiritual depth of Socrates that accounts for his decisive impact and lasting influence on Western thought and civilization. It was great discussing the book with Frank. I hope you enjoyed the episode. How did the idea of the book come to you? Because you've done it in a very unique way, telling the story of Socrates using a fictional narrator, but the content that's mentioned is based off of real historical recollections, isn't it? That's right. Everything in the book is taken from historical record. But the problem with Socrates is Plato was one of the most boring idiots in history. And so nobody knows anything about what a incredible person this was. Who knows that he almost never walked everywhere. He danced almost everywhere. Who knows so many things that Plato in his mentality did not highlight, although he covered much. And fortunately, he wasn't the only source. So, you know, there's also a problem with the saying we're all philosophers of our adaptation or we're all, we see things to the degree that we are. For instance, many people say, oh, Socrates going into blissful state for many minutes or even up to 24 hours, well, he must have had epilepsy. No, that's just the limit of their horizon, not his. So I'm a religious scholar, and I came to this after studying the sages, saints, yogis, and god men and women of the entire world. So I came to it not as a scholar, first of all, I came to it as a scholar, second of all. I found myself encountering a realizer, not a smarty pants. And so then I know that the proper way to approach someone who is full of divinity is not as a, an, an analyst, but rather as a devotee. So I cast a devotee coming to him so that the, the manner in which he gave his wisdom would be received by open heart, not by a analyzing mind. And... If we're talking about the type of person Socrates was, you also touched on the book widely, actually, around his execution. And for anyone that's listening, hopefully they do know that he was executed. But I wanted to ask you, why do you think this was actioned by the state? Well, as I point out, this was a revenge a personal revenge by Anitas, who was one of the primary generals who restored democracy after the fall of Athens against Sparta, and they had their own guy in there. So they overthrew that. But his son wasn't interested in being a tanner like he was. He was interested in following Socrates. And so Socrates, with his true philosophy, love of wisdom, was more interesting than tanning, and the guy was furious about it. And he was politically powerful. So he used the fact that Socrates insulted everybody in sight, along with his own personal revenge, to leverage this assault. Now, 
many, many of the great minds in Athenian history had also received a impiety charge. And the result of that was that you either have to leave the town or be executed. Well, it's like somebody in San Francisco saying, you're going to have to go to Oakland. You can't live in San Francisco anymore. Most of the wise men, uh, Anaxagoras and on and on and on. There's a long list of, of great minds that had to leave Athens. And they just went to Oakland. You know, they just went across the bridge, metaphorically. And that was fine with everybody. Socrates called their bluff. He was not meant to be executed. They had intentionally and explicitly and with agreement of everybody left the jail door wide open with an invitation to go, uh, you know, go to Oakland, will you? People had arranged for where he was going to go and et cetera, et cetera. And he called their bluff. He said, no, if I drink the, what I consider the immortal hemlock, everything I've ever been trying to do for my whole life will be triple underlined with exclamation points. And I'm getting old anyway. (laughs) Absolutely. And if I was to just mention the case that was brought against him, one for refusing to recognize the gods and the state, and also introducing others to new divinities, as well as corrupting the youth. And the penalty demanded was death. However, what was interesting is that he gave a prophecy of his death in terms of what would happen after. Do you feel as though what he said came to pass? Oh, absolutely. As soon as he was executed, the youth of Athens shut down the city for a month and shut down the gymnasium. And then the people realized what had happened. They ran Anitas out of town. The other two people, one was executed, I believe, or they were all like, they were thrown out because they went, oh, you promised us he would leave instead. We didn't want to kill him. And then they, as he predicted, erected a bronze statue to him. So the things that he said did come to pass. And what would you say was a philosophical takeaway from his death? Well, Nietzsche said that Socrates is the turning point of world history. Well, that's a pretty big statement. Why? I mean, what is it? Why do we study Socrates? Who can say, why is Socrates the father of Western civilization, father of philosophy, father of Western thought, whatever frame you want to put around him? Why? Well, Plato said, of course, Socrates was the first to draw philosophy or love of wisdom, which is what they meant by it, not some this analytical jawing around that we call it, from down from the skies or down from the heavens to the people's homes. Well, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, think of there's a primary presumption that you and I and everyone I know has, and that behind our eyes, we are souls. And we as souls are yearning and working for freedom, liberation, to our feeling is free. That's a unwritten and usually unspoken presumption everyone has. We owe these truths to be self-evident. We're committed to the dedication to happiness. You know, it's a few times been said, but we all each have this soul presumption. That's Socrates. We are children. We are the offspring of that difference that he made. 
So often he's been heralded as the martyr of free speech. Martin Luther King said that. Yes. He's often been told, love your enemies. This is first Socratic. Yes, he did that. Many, many things you could assign to how and why he's so revered and great. And literally every person in the world knows the name Socrates of a regular age. But why? That's because of the soul. The sole presumption that you and I have, everyone has, I am a soul behind my eyes. The eyes are the mirror of the soul. And that soul is going to be free. That's Socratic. So if you're a head of an authoritarian government and you have someone such as Socrates essentially empowering everyone to have the belief that they are as important as anyone else and that they have a soul beyond themselves as well, you'd feel as though that's going against everything you're trying to enforce or adjudicate, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Well, free people, if you look at our common history, we do not have a good record with free men and women. We poison them, we crucify them, we cut off their head, we ignore them, we say they were crazy people. That's what we do. Because when a free man or a free woman steps in front of you, you have three choices. You can walk away. That's what lots of do. You can make that voice stop. Crucifixion, uh, hemlock, cut their head off, right? Or three, you can change the way you live into being a servant of divinity and a servant of your fellows. That's the one least chosen. So then there's the choice between ignoring the person and getting rid of them. Well, they tried to get rid of him. They they couldn't ignore him. <laughs> he wouldn't let them do that. So they axed him because they weren't about to change. That's his legacy. We can change. The book offers an intimate view of Socrates, but I wanted to ask you, what did you want the reader to take away from it? Well, I wanted people to have a glimpse of what it is to be free. I wanted people to have a glimpse of, first of all, to know that this initiation into the growth toward absolute beauty was given to him by a woman. The father of Western thought was initiated by a woman. I want people to know that. Hmm, how do you think that got passed over, huh? Have you heard of that before? Hmm, are you sure? <laughs> I want people to know that the woman, although uh, the ancient Greeks were misogynistic, we can't use presentism on them too much, but nevertheless, I want people to know that his lineage is a woman that a woman initiated him into absolute beauty. And that the most important thing is to cultivate your feeling. If you do that, all your other questions are going to be answered. Your beliefs don't matter if your feeling is free. One thing that was definitely expressed in the book was the love that he had for his wife and just his views on love as well. Would you mind touching on that, Frank? Because I found that very interesting. Well, you know, he was famous for saying that he knew nothing at all, right? Everybody knows this. Mm. But he would say there's one exception, and that is that love is the right way to live. That's one thing he did know. And he knew that 
there's many kinds of love, and the early Christians used the Greek terms eros and agape to talk about them. Eros is any kind of love that has a sense of fulfillment. We're going to get together and it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to have this new job and it's really going to be great. I love baseball. The 49ers are going to win the Super Bowl. All these kind of idiocies of self-fulfillment, they all have this promise of fulfillment. That's Eros love, which we get erotic from, of course. But then there's agape or self-transcending love. You go beyond yourself. If you're intimate partner suddenly got a disease and they suddenly look like, like, would you love them as much? Because they can't fulfill you. They can't tickle your pretty parts and make you smile really big. Now, do you still love them? Would you still bring them dinner when you're not going to get dinner back or you're not going to get anything back? How do you love then? That's agape. It's self-transcending. The little self. When you get over your little self in service, that's agape love. That's what they call true love. So as you know, his wife, uh, Xanthippe, which means blonde, she was a young blonde babe, as they said, <laughs> loosely translating the ancient Greek. He had three kids. What Two of them were in her arms. She was a blonde bombshell. And they said, absolutely beautiful and the biggest shrew in the history of Athens. And he loved her, always loved her, no matter how badly she treated him. That's love. There were some phrases within the book that he said which were very thought-provoking. And what I wanted to ask is, is there a phrase from Socrates that sticks out to you more than another? I know this is a very difficult question to answer, though. It must be. No, no, no. I'll answer that with a few. The very first words he says in the book was when he goes into the marketplace and looks at everything and he said, look at all this stuff I don't need. Those who are not content with what they have will not be content with what they'd like to have. That's because, you see, money can't buy me love, another great Socratic fellow said with the Beatles. Happiness is not acquirable. You cannot seek happiness and get it. Happiness is inherent. The greatest happiness is the happiness that is already in you, with you, in your heart. You cannot buy love and you cannot get happiness. I have a new book coming out called Nothing Makes Me Happy. Nice little joke. Happiness is inherent. That is the greatest happiness. Now, the greatest happiness that you can get below the heart is sexual play. Imagine a happiness that's more pleasurable than that, that is already true of you. That's what Socrates is plugged into, which is beauty itself, as he was taught by his great Diotimo initiatrix. Beauty as itself is our very being, literally. And not only our very being, it is the being that is universal. Have you heard the good news? Matter equals light times the speed of light squared, of course, but E equals MC squared. We are light. This is beauty. And if you get over yourself in service and love, as the master of the Christian said, the estate of divinity is at hand. So it's been said that Western civilization is the uneasy marriage of Jerusalem and Athens. Toynbee said that, which means the uneasy marriage of Christianity, Christ, and, and Socrates. 
And everybody knows a few things about Jesus, but almost no one knows anything about Socrates. So that's why I wrote the book. I was even going to say a phrase that stuck out for me heavily in the book was knowledge is good for the soul. Employ your time improving yourself by reading other people's writings so you shall gain easily what others labored hard for. Struck a chord for me, even though I wasn't reading, I was listening to your audiobook, but it's the premise of why I do a lot of the podcasts in general, funnily enough. But what I wanted to ask you off the back of what you just said, actually, and this is just a curious thought as well, by the way, how much is known of Socrates' upbringing and how he became the person he is? Because the words of wisdom that comes out of his mouth almost effortlessly, you could write a whole book of quotables. It's, it's quite fascinating. When he was young, his father went to the Delphic Oracle, and the Oracle told him to leave him alone, that he was a special soul had come into, a special person that had come, and that they should not box him in like most social functions. So I think that had a lot to do with it. When he was also young, he met the venerable and awesome Parmenides. Now, Parmenides was also a spiritual master who was a realizer of being itself. And he was very impressed by the standing presence of someone who had realized divinity in his sight. So he wasn't boxed in and he himself saw with his own eyes what it is to be free in person. That is key for most people. You need to have the walkabout way. You need to have somebody go, who is that? My God, that person's different. And it's not charisma. It's you are a different order of human beings. You know the story of the cave, right? the allegory of the cave. In the allegory of the cave, there were three classes of people. One who saw the shadows on the walls and thought that that was reality. And then there was the, they were mythic and provincial minded. And then there was the, the other class of people that said, oh no, are these poor mythic people so, feel so sorry for them. They don't realize that those are just objects being cast by this logical fire onto the, with shadows onto the wall. It's just projections. What we see is reality because we see logically, blah, 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 right? And, uh, but they were both in the cave of subjectivity, in the cave of opinion, in the cave of, well, in my honest opinion. But there was another order of people in that allegory, another order of person who was stood outside the cave in ecstatic sunlight. The word ecstasy means to stand out, by the way. And what do you stand out of? The cave of your own subjectivity, the cave of your own opinion, the cave of your thoughts, the cave of your beliefs. You are ecstatic. When you are ecstatic, you stand out, the sunlight man or woman. And it's nice to see that spectrum of human possibility. We know what it is to believe in blah de blah and think that such and such is going to scare you or save you. And then if you only do this mantra 5,000 times, you're going to get the bird head you always wanted or whatever. That's mythic minded. And then there's the, you know, well, in my personal opinion, you know, the logic and the science says, well, I love science. I have two arms and I'm alive because of science. I'm a big fan of science, but it's still in the cave. But there is a, another possibility of being alive, the sunlight man. And Socrates was a sunlight man. He was ecstatic. He stood outside of opinion in immortal beauty. So I want people to have a vision like that, that it's possible.
That was Frank Marrero, author of the book Recollections of Socrates. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Frank for coming on the podcast, and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast, and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.